Are the Jedi Knights noble guardians of the Republic or religious tyrants? How much do they resemble the Knights of medieval Europe? Was the Jedi Purge an act of state-building by the Emperor? Coming up on Social Science Fiction. You're listening to Social Science Fiction, a podcast that blends political science and nerd culture, examining the politics of science fiction and fantasy. Hey there, today we're talking Star Wars and the Jedi Knights. I can't believe I've been doing this podcast for about a month now, and we haven't talked about one of the kings of science fiction and fantasy. So, while I wrap up my editing on the Heinlein episodes, we are going to talk Star Wars and the Jedi. But first, some introductory stuff to get out of the way. I'd like to be clear up front about where I'm coming from with Star Wars and what my personal biases are. I'm a big fan of Seamus Young, who hosts his own website and writes and records videos and so on. And by the way, if you're into nerdy analysis, talking in a smart way about video games and nerd culture and so on, kind of the stuff I do, but less political, check out Seamus Young. I think he does great stuff and he's at SeamusYoung.com slash 20SidedTale. But anyway, Seamus Young has been writing about Star Wars lately. He's been talking about Jedi Fallen Order. And so he's been writing about the the Jedi a little bit in. He raised a point that I think is kind of interesting. He wrote about how there's kind of a generational cutoff in terms of how you perceive the Jedi. If you're over a certain age and you grew up primarily with the original trilogy, you tend to see the Jedi as noble guardians, as sort of loner mystics who travel the galaxy doing good and helping people. If you're under a certain age and you grew up primarily with the prequels or newer stuff, you probably see the Jedi as straight action heroes who leap into battle against hordes of villains spouting catchy one-liners. And I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. It's interesting how the lore has changed over time. But I'll say up front, I am in the former camp. I am one of the people who grew up primarily with the original trilogy and all the new stuff. And I realize I'm revealing a little bit about my age and how friggin' old I am when I say the new stuff for me includes the prequels. Basically everything after the original trilogy to me is the new stuff. And I always preferred the original trilogy's way of looking at the Jedi. That's my personal bias. For me, the original trilogy and the Knights of the Old Republic video games are sort of my headcanon. That's what I really love. And everything else is secondary to me. And this is, of course, not a judgment on the later stuff or fans of the later stuff. If you like the prequels, if you like the new trilogy, if you like some of the other video games and cartoons and TV shows and so on, that's great. I'm just saying this is where kind of I'm coming from. But in this episode, I am going to try to draw on as much of the lore as I can and incorporate all of that into it. I'm going to try to look at the Jedi from both perspectives, from kind of an original trilogy perspective, as well as from the perspective of someone who's looking at the whole breadth of the Star Wars canon. So let's start with the Jedi of the original trilogy. Primarily what we get about the Jedi comes from Obi-Wan talking to Luke in Obi-Wan's hut and little bits and pieces he gives Luke on the Millennium Falcon as they're heading to Alderaan. And the image we get of the Jedi is 
really kind of a mix of Arthurian knights, knights of the King Arthur legend, and samurai as portrayed in Kurosawa films and similar movies and novels, comic books, and so on. And this, of course, makes sense because these were Lucas's primary inspirations in making Star Wars, it seems. Lucas is taking those classical adventure and fantasy elements, Knights of the Round Table and Wandering Samurai and so on, along with bits and pieces of World War II history and so on, and kind of cramming them all together to create this narrative. And of course, the original trilogy, and especially the first movie, very much fantasy-based. It's drawing on the tropes of classic fantasy stories. You have noble knights, a wise old wizard, fighting a black knight, and an evil kingdom to rescue a princess. It's all very fantasy, so it makes sense that Lucas's primary inspirations are fantasy-style knights and samurai, and that that's how the Jedi end up being portrayed. The way Obi-Wan describes them, these Jedi seem to be noble warriors possessing a strict moral code, a sense of religious idealism, and they're driven to protect the innocent, fight for justice, and defend the Old Republic, which is portrayed as the pinnacle of just government. And that all fits with Kurosawa Samurai Arthurian Knights. From Arthurian Knights, you get the religious idealism. It just goes from being Christianity to the Force and the Jedi's religious code across all the medieval fantasy stories and samurai stories. You have images of samurai and knights wandering the land, protecting innocent people, fighting bandits and bad guys, and so on. So all seems to fit based on what Obi-Wan says. So you get the sense that Jedi are very solitary individuals. They come off as wandering nomads. They sort of seem like like warrior monks. They wander the galaxy on their own or maybe in pairs or maybe a small group of them looking for problems to set right, noble causes to get wrapped up in and fight for. And there seems to be very minimal oversight of them. Obi-Wan doesn't really talk about them being ordered to go anywhere or being involved with any government apart from being guardians of the Republic in general. So while they're recognized as being part of the Republic in some way, they're not really being commanded by it. They do their own thing. That's what you get of the Jedi from Obi-Wan in the original trilogy, especially in episode four. And we get more of that from Obi-Wan in later movies and from Yoda and so on. So that's the image of the Jedi the original trilogy gives us. The fantasy knights of Europe, the stylized, idealized samurai of movies and TV shows and so on. Of course, this doesn't reflect the reality of these institutions at all. It doesn't reflect the reality of knights and knighthood or the samurai. In reality, these individuals and the institutions that they propped up were very different from the romanticized, stylized views we get in books and movies and so on. In reality, knights and samurai were both officials in and defenders of the feudal system of Europe and feudal Japan. And if you're not familiar with feudalism, essentially the idea is sort of a pyramid scheme. Power flows from the top. In a feudal society, at least in idealized feudal society, and you will find slight variations across history and in different parts of the world at different times. But the general idea of feudalism is power ultimately rests at the top. You have a king or a queen, you have a monarch who ultimately holds power over a territory, but then beneath them you have a series of nobles, dukes, barons, and they will hold pieces of land with the permission of the king, and they support the king, and the king gives 
gives them a right to hold on to their power, their piece of land, and so on. And beneath them, there will be lower officials. And beneath them, eventually you get down to just the peasants who farm, work the land, do what they're told. When there's a war, the nobles recruit them into their army and they go fight. So that's feudalism. Power rests at the top and kind of trickles down below. And so in medieval feudal societies in Europe, and I know less about Japanese history, but from what I've read, I get the sense it was very similar. You have these feudal systems where knights and samurai represent sort of a lower rung in that noble order. So knights samurai represented a class of, generally a lower class of, but a class of nobility. They often held land, they had wealth, they fought to protect and prop up their feudal system, they fought for the monarch they served, and in return, they received land and wealth and got to maintain their status and so on. And of course, in the real world, these knights, these samurai, they didn't get their position because they were remarkably skilled or chivalrous or noble. I'm sure you could find individuals that were, but that's not what made you a knight or a samurai. What made you a knight or a samurai is you were most likely born into this system, and being born into this class of people, you had wealth and power. In other words, the monarchs of Europe, of Japan, couldn't hope to hold on to power, couldn't hope to control their peasants, to keep control of their country and defend their country against possible foreign threat without the support of these wealthy individuals who could pay taxes to prop up all the institutions that were required to make the government function. They couldn't protect themselves and survive without the military power of these nobles. These nobles were the ones who could round up the peasants, give them spears, and tell them to go fight. And of course, these knights, these samurai, these were the individuals with the wealth to acquire the armor, the arms, the horses, the training to become elite warriors. At a certain period in medieval Europe, in feudal Japan, the knight, the samurai, represents the pinnacle of warfare. These are the individuals that have the weapons and the armor and the training to fight most effectively for their monarch. And because the monarchs know this, because the monarchs know they can't survive without the support of of these wealthy, well-armed, well-trained individuals. They create a system that gives them a lot of privileges, a lot of power. So there's really nothing noble or sacred about it. It's some king in Europe saying, look, I realize I can't hold on to power if I don't have the support of these guys with weapons and people at their command. So I'm going to give them titles and give them permission to have certain chunks of land that'll make them wealthy, wealthier. And I'm going to ask in exchange that they swear, feel to me, that they stay loyal to me, and fight for me when I need them to. And thus I ensure that I have a military at my command when I need it, and I ensure that these individuals who might have enough power to one day get together and challenge me for control of the country, I keep them in line. I keep them loyal so they don't start thinking about rebelling against me. It's been argued by historians, political scientists, that the stirrup the little foothold that dangles off a saddle and makes it easier to ride on a horse and maintain stability and control and so on. It's been argued that the stirrup kind of made knighthood and feudalism in Europe. Essentially, the argument being the stirrup allows for mounted warfare. It allows for the first time individuals to ride on horses and use them in combat, not just for transportation. And this leads to a new form of warfare where if you have 
have guys on horses. They are just going to beat anything else that an enemy can put on a field. So suddenly the monarchs of Europe need mounted warriors. And so the individuals with the money to buy horses and saddles and stirrups and learn to use them and so on become indispensable for the monarchs of Europe. And so the monarchs of Europe, again, give them privileges, titles, wealth, and so on. And this whole feudal system develops along with all these ideas and titles and institutions such as nobility, knighthood, and so on. So the real world versions of samurai, of knights, much less noble, much less chivalrous. It really is a matter of wealth and power. Who has it and how they use it to hold on to their status. And over time in Europe, in Japan, these individuals became, again, romanticized. We started to view the knight not as a mid-level government functionary and warrior for the status quo or the samurai in a similar way. We start to view them as heroes, as heroic, noble figures. And of course, it makes sense that the knights, the samurai of the time would have encouraged people to view them this way. Of course, you don't want people to think that you just have your power and your position because you've got money and weapons. You want them to think that you are noble and chivalrous and so on. So the knights, the samurai of the time certainly encouraged this view of them as being necessary, noble heroes. And this myth grows up over time until we get to the 20th century and we have this long line of of myths and legends portraying knights, samurai, these kinds of figures as heroes. And that's the romanticized legend that George Lucas draws from for the Jedi in Star Wars, at least in the original trilogy. Obi-Wan talks to Luke in his hut in the first movie about how he brought his father Anakin away from his home and his family on an idealistic crusade, all very much fitting with the romanticized knight. All very much Kurosawa and Camelot, and very little discussion of politics or government or how the Jedi fit within politics. Now that, of course, was just the original trilogy. Subsequent comics, novels, and eventually the prequels fleshed out the Jedi Knights and the Jedi Order and examined their place in society and politics under the Old Republic. Now, interestingly, as the Jedi become fleshed out, as we learn more about the Old Republic and how the Old Republic operated and how Jedi fit into it, what we begin to see is less of that romanticized view of the Jedi and less drawing on those old fantasy stories. What we begin to see is the Jedi being portrayed almost as more realistic versions of knights and samurai. We're seeing less of the fantasy, less Jedi knights as Arthurian knights as noble heroes who go out and fight for good and save princesses and fight dragons and so on. We start to see Jedi Knights as members of a powerful institution that wield considerable political power and fit into the larger hierarchy of power in the Old Republic government. Now, to be clear, the Jedi are never portrayed as true feudal lords. They don't control pieces of land, or I guess in Star Wars it would be planets. So they don't control planets or sectors of space. They don't have specific territory that's designated as theirs. They don't seem to officially wield political power, but they are portrayed as having considerable military power and flowing from that some degree of political influence that they wield in the Old Republic. And they seem to have this military power that the Old Republic seems to rely on in the same way that kings of Europe or rulers of Japan relied on the knights and the samurai. 
it's telling that the Jedi Council meets on Coruscant, the capital of the Old Republic. Representatives of the Jedi Order meet consistently with politicians, with members of the government. They seem to be a voice in any political discussions when it comes to crafting policy. And it's fairly clear that they are relied on as a military force. The Republic does not seem capable of fighting wars and defending itself without the Jedi Order. In Phantom Menace, it's two Jedi, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, who are sent on a diplomatic mission to Naboo to start looking into what's going on with the Trade Federation. Later, it's Jedi who end up going back there to fight the Trade Federation and help liberate the people of Naboo. By the time we get to the third movie of the prequel trilogy, we have Jedi fighting openly, explicitly, in the Republic's war against the Trade Federation. The Jedi are serving as officers, as generals in the Republic military. It seems very fairly clear that at least in the early years of the Clone War, the Republic really could not function, could not fight without the support of the Jedi. The Jedi are providing significant military power on the ground, and they also seem to be the ones that are really planning the war. You see scenes in the third movie where you have Mace Windu and Yoda and the other members of the Jedi Council sitting around planning out where they're going to attack, where they're going to defend. So fairly clear that the Republic relies on the Jedi as a military force, much like rulers of Europe and feudal Japan relied on knights and samurais to provide military aid in the event of conflict. And it's very clear that the Jedi knights do derive some degree of political influence because of this. They, again, don't have official positions, it seems, within the Republic government, but they are heard, they are listened to whenever they have something to say. Their opinions are taken seriously in a way that the average citizens are probably not going to be. So once we get past the original trilogy, we do seem to move away from the romanticized knights and samurai to something a little more realistic. But I want to dig in in a little more detail and figure out what exactly are the Jedi as an institution. To some degree, they seem to be a religious order. They have religious doctrine. Lucas certainly drew on Buddhism for inspiration for developing his idea of the Jedi. In fact, I think I remember hearing one time some Buddhist monks were brought to see the original Star Wars when it came out, and they loved it, apparently, the idea of light and dark and balance. So certainly draws on some elements of Buddhism, but the Jedi don't have any larger religious doctrine for the mass they really are only concerned with their members. And to become a member, you already have to have this connection to the Force and be capable of becoming a Jedi. They seem more like a monastic order, an elite organization that tries to recruit and train members, but they lack the larger religious organization behind them. They're not trying to preach to the masses, although they do often come off as very preachy in general. So they have elements of being a religious order, but that's certainly not all they are. Are they a political faction? Well, they call themselves the Guardians of the Republic. This is something that's consistent from the prequels into the original trilogy. Obi-Wan in the original trilogy refers to the Jedi as Guardians of the Republic. In the prequels, Jedi Knights consistently refer to themselves as Guardians of the Republic. And this is interesting because this is the Jedi identifying themselves with a single state. So they talk about having a larger worldview, a universal, all-encompassing worldview. They talk about universal ideas, 
fighting for life and peace and justice and the light side and so on. So while they have sort of these universal ideals and talk about wanting to defend these ideals in a universal way, they only seem interested in fighting for these ideals within the confines of the Republic and only fighting for those ideals in service of defending the Republic. So they do seem to be a political faction within the Republic. They identify themselves with the Republic. They fight for the Republic. And this seems to take precedence over a lot of other things they might be doing. Further, they're definitely not operating purely as an independent entity either. Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are sent on a mission as official representatives of the Republic. The Jedi will go on to lead the Republic army. They are not entirely independent of the Republic, nor the Republic independent of them. So they are to some degree a political faction wielding political power within the Republic and wielding political power on behalf of the Republic. So the Jedi, they're sort of a religious organization, certainly a political faction. Are they perhaps a competing religious elite within the society? There is something sort of, in my view, creepy and illiberal about the Jedi Order and how they function in the Old Republic. They are a group of elites who are unelected, not accountable to the people of the Republic in any meaningful way, and who are also committed to a specific religious ideal. This is certainly not something that would fly, for example, in the United States with our First Amendment drawing a line between religion and politics. Something that wouldn't fly in probably most liberal democracies of today. You have a religious organization organization that doesn't answer the people, but that wields considerable political power. And this, of course, is not unheard of throughout human history and not even unheard of today. The Catholic Church in medieval Europe represented a religious organization that wielded considerable political power over the states of Europe. Of course, the Catholic Church always sought to maintain independence from the states of Europe. While the church kind of wanted to have its fingers in all of the states of Europe, wielding some degree of influence, telling the monarchs what they can and can't do, the church never tried to tie itself to a single state. It always sought to remain an independent entity that also could wield power abroad. Whereas the Jedi have tied themselves to a single state, and far from trying to be independent from it, they are trying to seemingly carve out a spot for them in the political hierarchy of the Republic. So maybe the Jedi are more like the Saudi ulama, the Islamic clerics of Saudi Arabia. It seems like something like that could fit. An organization that has tied itself to the state in some way and seeks to wield political power over the rulers of the state through their religious messaging. If you're not familiar with the history of Saudi Arabia, the current ruling family, the Saud family, came to power through an alliance with some of the tribes of what is now Saudi Arabia. These tribes who predominantly practiced what we in the West refer to as Wahhabism, a very fundamentalist interpretation of Islam. And in doing so, the Saud family sort of tied themselves to this religious belief. And this has had repercussions for Saudi Arabia and the Saudi royal family on to today, where today you have the Saudi family who continue to wield power in the name of their interpretation of Islam, who seek to legitimize their rule, justify their rule over Saudi Arabia by claiming that they represent good religious government, good Islamic government, and 
claiming that they are the ones that can defend Islam, protect the holy sites of Islam like Mecca and Medina, who can enforce religious law over their territory. And so this is largely how the Saudi government legitimizes their rule, makes themselves appear legitimate to the people by claiming, yeah, we're good religious government. And by the way, this is largely a crock. If you are familiar at all with the Saudi royal family, if you've read anything about their history, a lot of them are not good Muslims. You're going to find a lot of Saudi princes who are drunks, who like to go out and party and womanize. They do a lot of nasty things that would not fly within Islam and certainly not within the very fundamentalist interpretation that is enforced in Saudi Arabia. But the point is, this is a government that legitimizes itself on religious grounds. And because of this, the ulema, the Council of Islamic Clerics in Saudi Arabia, wields some degree of influence over the government. Essentially, you have these Islamic clerics who don't have much official political power, but they know if they start making waves, if they start preaching that the Saudi government is no longer a good model for Islamic government, if they start saying the king and the princes and so on aren't good Muslims, the Saudi royal family might have a problem on their hands. They'd have to worry about whether or not people might start to look at them as being illegitimate. They might have to worry about protests and uprisings and so on. So the Saudi royal family always kind of walking this fine line, trying to hold power for themselves, but also keep the religious officials happy enough that they don't make waves for them. And thus, these Islamic officials are able to hold on to a degree of independence and wield a degree of political power. And it seems like the Jedi could maybe fit into this model. They exist within the Republic, but are to a degree independent of it. They don't hold any official political power, but they are able to influence what the Republic does. Republic officials seem to be concerned with what the Jedi are thinking in saying. On the other hand, the Jedi don't go out and preach to the masses. They don't have a religious message that they want to carry to the people. They don't criticize the Republic for not being good Jedi or being good representatives of Jedi beliefs. The Republic itself doesn't seek to legitimize its rule, its authority, through appeals to religious belief. They legitimize the rule by saying, we're a democracy. You voted for us, so we have a right to rule. And further, the Jedi don't seem to wield significant influence over the masses. There are certainly lots of people in the Republic who respect and admire the Jedi, who love what the Jedi do. But over the course of the movies and the comics and so on, it seems like you can find just as many citizens of the Republic who hate the Jedi, who don't like them, don't get them, certainly don't care what they have to say. And so the Republic doesn't seem to need the Jedi to legitimize their rule. The Republic doesn't need the Jedi to tell the people, yeah, the Republic is good. We should keep supporting the Republic and its government. So maybe the Jedi don't fit as sort of an independent religious political organization. So... We're back to sort of the feudal knights model. The kings of Europe, the daimyos of Japan, needed their knights, needed their samurai because they couldn't hold on to power. They couldn't fight their wars without them. And it seems that the Republic listens to the Jedi, allows them a degree of influence over their politics because they need them. It's very telling that up until the end of the second movie in the prequels, the Republic doesn't seem to have any kind of professional standing army. 
which by the way is shocking. It's very hard to imagine a political power the size of the Galactic Republic lacking some kind of standing army. The idea that the Republic could get this big, have this kind of power, and have never developed a standing professionalized army is really kind of bizarre. But it is clearly the case. Up until Yoda shows up with the clones from Kamino, there is no Republic standing army. So the Republic does seem to largely rely on the Jedi, and I don't know what else they rely on. I don't know if there's some comic or novel that explains this. If anyone knows, if there's any expert on all of the detailed background of Star Wars and all the deeper lore, please let me know. In the past when the Republic went to war, before the Clone War, did they rely on mercenaries? Did they hire just various mercenary forces to go fight for them? Did they rely on conscription? Did they just round up citizens of the Republic, give them blasters and say, you're fighting in the war now until it's over? I don't know what the Republic relied on apart from the Jedi, because the Jedi don't seem like they would be enough to fight wars or maintain order throughout this galaxy-spanning Republic. But whatever it was, it certainly wasn't a professional standing army. But the Republic all of a sudden has this clone army. They have professional soldiers whose only job is to train and fight and be soldiers. And this is portrayed in the prequels as a shocking and, for some characters, scary thing. But even then, up until the very end of Revenge of the Sith, the Jedi are still portrayed as being necessary to the war effort. Even with this professional army, it's not built up enough to do the job on its own. The Jedi are still incorporated into the military, into the war effort. So is this what the Jedi are, in fact? Simply the grim reality of feudal knights? Is the portrayal Obi-Wan gives to Luke in the original trilogy sort of Obi-Wan's attempt to romanticize this past and gloss over this darker reality of the Jedi Knights? Are they in fact truly European feudal knights, an organization of warriors who are unelected, have no legitimate claim to power, but wield influence over the Republic's government because they have the means to fight for the Republic? This is an interesting way of looking at the Jedi, and it can sort of make us look at the whole course of the prequels into the original trilogy and into the new trilogy in an interesting way where we kind of have replicating to some degree our real world history with knights and samurai where you have the reality in the past where they existed and they were just a political and military organization and over time that history is to some degree forgotten we romanticize them we write stories and come up with fantasies that cast these figures as chivalrous and noble warriors and we see the same thing happening by the time we get to the original trilogy where the Jedi are to some degree forgotten and now we have the surviving members of the Order trying to romanticize the past, create this sort of false impression of what the Jedi were and what the Jedi are and we get to the new trilogy where we have people rediscovering this history and becoming perhaps a bit jaded with the idea of the Jedi, recognizing that the real history doesn't sync up with the legend they've heard and people including Luke Skywalker questioning whether or not the Jedi were ever a good thing to begin with and whether or not maybe we should be glad they're gone. And this view of the Jedi and what the Jedi were in the Old Republic also makes us re-examine the actions of Palpatine and the Jedi Purge. In real life, 
the Knights of Europe, the Samurai of Japan, they lost their power when the rulers of Europe, of Japan, developed new technology and acquired the wealth and the ability to raise larger professional armies. As gunpowder is developed and we invent new ways to use it, and as the European states grow larger and encompass more people, and the Europeans get better at taxing and raising the funds to hire soldiers and pay soldiers to be professional soldiers, the monarchs of Europe, and something similar happens in Japan, gain the ability to raise large professional armies, and at a certain point, armed with firearms, and the knights the samurai become obsolete from a military perspective. They're just not needed anymore. And so gradually they lose their power. We start to see the end of feudalism. The monarchs of Europe, the emperors of Japan, consolidate power for themselves. They develop standing armies that are firmly under their control. They no longer need all of these knights, all of these samurai, all of these nobles scattered across their countries to raise their own separate armies and to show up in armor on horseback and to fight for them. And so these knights, these samurai, they cease to exist as they did. And to some degree, they stick around. We still have the title of knight moving forward, but they no longer exist as independent wielders of political or military power. So new technology, standing armies, render these old ways of fighting, these old ways of governing obsolete. And we see the birth of new political organizations, new kinds of countries. And further, this kind of gives us the birth of the modern state as we know it, where up until now you have countries, but power is sort of diffuse and overlapping where you can have something called England and something called France, but while there's a king in each of those places, there are also nobles all claiming their own pieces of territory and there's overlapping layers of political power and influence and so on. So it's all very muddied through this feudal system. Whereas once the monarchs are able to raise professional armies, render the knights obsolete, they take full power for themselves, they eliminate these competing political powers and create the modern unified states that we know today. And it seems like this is sort of what's happening by the end of the prequels. You have Palpatine, his ultimate goal being to consolidate power for himself. Apart from overthrowing the Senate, ending democracy, he's also eliminating the independent power of the Jedi. Palpatine secretly crafts his own independent army, his own professional army that can render the Jedi obsolete. They can defeat the Jedi and now fight wars, maintain order throughout his empire without needing to rely on mercenaries or Jedi or any other independent force. Palpatine doesn't have to share power anymore. His empire doesn't have to share power with the Jedi, with anyone else because now he's got the technology, he's got the army to maintain power, to fight wars on his own. So it seems like the model Palpatine is following is the model of state building in Europe. Doesn't make what he did any better, but it definitely fits within a clear historical narrative. So all of this makes sense. Jedi Knights as the true model of the European feudal knight. But I keep coming back to the religious element, and it still comes off to me as just a bit creepy. There's one scene in particular that I'm thinking of. When Mace Windu gets together a bunch of Jedi to attempt to arrest Palpatine. 
Now, we've all seen the movie, we know what happens, Anakin shows up, tells Mace Windu, Palpatine's a secret Sith, he's behind all of this, he's the bad guy. Mace Windu, what? Palpatine's a Sith Lord? We gotta do something about this. Now, apart from how the hell did Mace Windu and the Jedi not see any of this coming, how is this shocking to any of them? It's absurd, it just speaks to how incompetent the Jedi seem to have become. But putting that aside, once Mace Windu has discovered Palpatine is secretly a Sith, he immediately rounds up a bunch of Jedi, goes to arrest him. This should creep us out. Now, yes, stepping outside the movies, we, the viewers, know that Palpatine is evil. We know that all Sith are automatically evil. The same way all orcs in the Lord of the Rings are automatically evil. The same way we know all Star Trek Ferengi sleep with a copy of Atlas Shrugged under their pillows. We know this because we, the audience, know that realities have been simplified for the sake of making a clearer narrative. We, the audience, know that. But people within the movies, within this setting, Mace Windu, shouldn't they not jump to such conclusions? Mace Windu hears that Palpatine is a Sith, he gets a bunch of Jedi, and goes straight to Palpatine's office and declares him under arrest. No one asks Mace if he's got a warrant. No one asks Mace if he talked to a judge before any of this happened. No one asks if he's got probable cause. No one questions that the only evidence they have for these accusations is the word of Anakin Skywalker, the creepy kid who everybody thinks they really can't trust anyway. Everybody just accepts, at least all the Jedi, that Mace is right, the Jedi should and have a right to arrest an elected official, the chief executive of the Republic, on the suspicion that he's a member of a heretical religious sect. I mean, let's be clear. This is like if a bunch of Catholic priests pulled up to the White House, kicked in the door to the Oval Office, and arrested the president because they discovered he's a secret Mennonite. It's not supposed to happen in a liberal democracy. And again, we know Palpatine is in fact evil, but Mace Windu doesn't know that for certain. Again, he's got the word of Anakin in his belief that all Sith are automatically evil. And yes, of course, we know that they are. But again, there should be shades of gray in the minds of some of these characters. So my point is they're not wrong about Palpatine, but it's still creepy that they're able to do that. And that they're able to do that on religious grounds. When Palpatine says, so it's treason then, he's not exactly wrong. It's kind of treasonous for this religious organization without any actual political authority, this group of unelected, unaccountable individuals to try to arrest an elected official without warrant, without any real probable cause. So ultimately, it seems like the Jedi represented a mix of different things within the Republic. Primarily, they represent European feudal knights, but probably with a little bit of Catholic bishops of medieval Europe thrown in, along with maybe a little bit of Saudi Arabia's Islamic clerics. They are primarily a political force that wields influence through their ability to act as a military force on behalf of the Republic, but there is still a religious element here that, while not seeking to preach the masses, they do allow to inform their decision-making and how they interact with the Republic. But still, probably primarily the Jedi represent not the romanticized, but the true knights of medieval Europe, and they ultimately suffer the same fate, obsolescence and destruction. So that is the Jedi Order. And I gotta say, having thought about this more and gone through all of this, it's kind of depressing. Again, I have to say, my personal bias is I like the original conception of the Jedi. I realize it's weird for me to say, especially given the subject matter of this podcast, but I almost liked the Jedi more when they were less political. I kind of liked the romanticized fantasy Jedi, probably because it's what I grew up with, and I think there's just so many other pieces of fiction that can give me my political sci-fi fix. That's my personal preference. Of course, there's nothing wrong 
wrong with viewing this in other ways, and I think ultimately the direction the canon has been going, the direction we've been going since the prequels and moving forward is this darker, more pessimistic view of the Jedi. They're not heroes, they're just another political and military force in the galaxy. So did I get that right? Let me know. Is there some other way we should be looking at the Jedi? Are they actually heroes and I've misinterpreted the prequels and the other new stuff? Is it a good thing that they're being portrayed this way? Do you like the new direction the Jedi took? Are you like me? Do you like classic Jedi? What did I get right? What did I get wrong? Let me know. Hey, so starting this week, I'd like to start doing something new at the end of my episodes. And I guess we can call it a side rant, where I talk briefly about something that's related to the topic I covered today, but that I couldn't really fit into the episode proper. Maybe it doesn't relate to politics, or it's just too off track or too weird. But starting this week, stick around for the end of the episode for a little side rant. And for this week, my side rant is I want to complain about my absolute most hated scene in all of the Star Wars movies. I'm talking about the beginning of the Anakin-Obi-Wan showdown in Revenge of the Sith. Obi-Wan goes to Mustafar to confront Anakin. They stand on the landing pad where Obi-Wan is just touched down. They square off against one another and they have this brief exchange that has now been parodied and redone and TikToked and YouTubed to no end. Obi-Wan confronts Anakin. Anakin says to his one-time friend, if you're not with me, then you are my enemy. To which Obi-Wan replies, only a Sith deals in absolutes. And then they fight for 20 minutes. Now, this exchange bugs me to no end. I mean, I get what George Lucas was trying to do here. George Lucas wrote this movie as the war on terror and the Iraq war were getting underway. There was a lot of criticism in fiction of the Bush administration. There was a lot of commentary on Bush in the war on terror. And I think it's pretty clear that Anakin's line, if you're not with me, then you are my enemy, was meant to be a rebuke of George Bush's saying in a speech, you're either with us or against us. This being a message to the rest of the world with regards to the war on terror. If you don't join us in this fight against terrorists, then you're against us. You're with the terrorists. And Bush caught a lot of flack for that line. There was a lot of criticism of his position in the war on terror, the way he talked about it, the way he tried to win people to the cause. And so you had a lot of movies, TV shows, books, touching on that, giving us characters that kind of echoed Bush's sentiments and portrayed them as the villains. And I think in the future, at some point, I'd love to do an episode where I just talk about this, all the fiction that was impacted by 9-11 and the war on terror and the Bush administration, because there's so many things that I think end up being commentary on the war in Iraq and the war on terror. Star Wars did it. Avatar The Last Airbender did it. There's so many cases of that. But anyway, that's clearly what George Lucas is going for here. A commentary on the Bush administration, the dangers of the war on terror, the war in Iraq, casting Bush as a Sith, putting Bush's words in the mouth of the villains of the films. Totally valid way to make a movie. I love political commentary. I think in George Lucas's case, it was very clumsy. But apart from the obvious shot of political commentary, the exchange is just absurd. Only a Sith deals in absolutes. Only a Sith deals in absolutes? That itself is an absolutist statement. And beyond that statement itself, the Jedi are incredibly absolutist. The Jedi are a fundamentalist religious sect. The Jedi literally see the world in terms of black and white. There is a good side and a bad side. There is a light side and a dark side. One is good, one is evil. The light side can only be found 
and served and followed by adhering to a strict code of conduct and any deviation from that code will lead inevitably to the dark side. I can't think of anybody more absolutist than a Jedi. How can Obi-Wan Kenobi say that with a straight face. This, of course, doesn't make Anakin the good guy. You kill children, you kind of lose the moral high ground forever. But it still makes Obi-Wan Kenobi come off as absurd. He's not wrong about Anakin, but that statement is just utterly bizarre and silly. And I have never been able to get over that. It is my absolute worst, most hated moment in all of Star Wars. And so, that was my side rant. I had to get that off my chest. Thank you for listening. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. As always, please get online, let me know what you like, what you don't like. I love to hear critiques and criticisms or thoughts on the episodes, suggestions for future episodes. Be in touch, let me know what you think. Love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at Social Sci-Fi Show, on Facebook at Social Science Fiction Podcast, on Instagram at Social underscore Sci underscore Fi, and you can email me at Social Science Fiction Show at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. New episode next Tuesday. We get back to... Heinlein and Heinlein's politics. See you then.